It's our third lesson in the book of Jonah, third lesson, third chapter that Connor just read for us. Inside of the announcement sheet, you're going to find an outline that says the Jonah saga, the restart, Jonah chapter 3 at the top of it. You can use it as we go through our study this morning. And as we, as we do, and this is proper when we approach the Word of God in these sacred texts, we want to ask God to bless us. And so let's bow our heads and join our hearts and ask God to bless us in this study. Lord, you are so vast and, and deep and high that our, our finite minds, Father, are, are just overwhelmed. It feels at times that we're drowning in, in, in the knowledge of your greatness and of your character in all of the universe. And there is in our mind, Father, the truth that you are the supreme value of the universe that we believe, that we pray, Father, that it be a truth that gets all the way down into our heart, that goes all the way down into our heart in such a way that we're changed, that we're transformed, that we are different people. Not just the facade, Father, but all the way down into the heart, into the depth of the, the most intimate part of our core being, that that is a place, Father, where you reside, and change us. And as we study again out of this, this short but great prophetic book out of the Old Testament, Father, we, we are filled with gratitude to have these sacred words at our disposal, to meditate and to contemplate in ways, Father, that, that we are magnifying our knowledge of, of you in, in our minds and hearts. And so our prayer in this moment is to give us eyes that see and ears that hear Father, so that we are good stewards of this Word. Workers, Father, in, in the, the, the labor of, of study and of contemplation. And we pray, Father, that Your Spirit changes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, for the uh, past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jonah, this unique and ironic uh, story about a reluctant prophet. And I think maybe a quick review would be in order. You're going to remember that the story begins when God calls Jonah. There is a word from God that goes out to Jonah. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And then Jonah does what most people tend to do when God calls them. He runs away. He runs away in exactly the opposite direction because when the going gets tough, the reluctant get out of dodge. But in Jonah's case, the operative word is down. And so Jonah goes down to a city called Joppa. He goes down to a ship that is destined to the port city of Tarshish. He goes down into the hold of the ship and there he goes to sleep, which is the direction that Jonah's life is going, down. But God is a determined God, and He's a mighty God. And as a mighty God, whose plans are not going to be thwarted, God causes this great storm to come up. And all of the sailors that are out on this boat pray to their gods, but this storm does not cease. It does not calm down in the least. In fact, this storm becomes so massive and so dangerous and, and, and so incredibly overwhelming that these sailors begin to throw their prized cargo overboard. Tremendous storm. 
I remember watching a movie, you probably all have seen it, uh, or most of you have seen it, the movie The Perfect Storm. In that movie, the crew is doing the opposite. In that movie, the crew is driving that boat right into the teeth of that storm, the storm of the century, in order to avoid losing their cargo. This storm is so massive that they're throwing it overboard. So massive, so serious is this storm. And finally, as you know, the sailors go to Jonah, who basically tells them that they are throwing overboard the wrong stuff. And he tells them that he is on the run from God, that he is a Hebrew, that he is a prophet of God, that he's running from God, and if they want to save their lives, they're going to have to throw him over the side. And at first, these sailors don't really want to do that, but they fearfully oblige And then the weather becomes calm and the sailors, these pagan sailors who had each been praying to their different gods all become believers in the God of the universe, in Yahweh, in the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is the first big surprise of the story. But where is Jonah? Well, Jonah at this point is sinking down into the sea and this seems like it's the end for Jonah, but God appoints this great Jonah swallowing fish to save him. Now, we may not know of any fish that at least we've discovered up to this point in time that can swallow a man and keep him alive for three days, but that's kind of the point of this part of the story, right? That God is the kind of God that can do miraculous things. And after three days and three nights, Jonah is praying to God, wondering what's going to become of his life. And in that darkness, down in the depths of the ocean, down inside of this great fish, in that darkness, God hears Jonah. He's heard. And God hears Jonah, and He tells the fish to vomit Jonah up on the land. And this is what the great fish does. It it vomits Jonah up on the land. Now, the first temptation that Jonah is facing is to do the opposite of what God wanted him to do. And that's the same kind of temptation that you and I face on a daily basis. We face the temptation of doing the opposite of what God wants us to do. Now, what do you think the next temptation for Jonah might be. Well, I think the second temptation was maybe to do a variation of what God wanted. Jonah picks himself up off of the beach and he has sort of this aha moment. And he says to himself, goodness gracious, you know, what an ordeal. I'm covered in, in fish slime, but I'm alive. And yes, God has heard my prayer and God has saved me and I should do something about this. Maybe I ought to write it down. Maybe I should write down my spiritual memoir. I'll call it Tuesdays with Jonah. But why stop with just a story? Why don't I build a church right here where God delivered me? Right here on the beach. It's a beautiful location. There's lots of parking, no road construction, and it's really because of a miracle. I'll call it the Church of the Whales. And we'll do baptisms by throwing people off boats. And we'll have testimonies from former pagan sailors. You know, it's not hard to imagine that Jonah is still a little reluctant to go to Nineveh, which is where we pick up the story this morning in chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a what? A what? How many times? A second time. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Sounds vaguely familiar, right? It is significant always in the Bible when God has to repeat Himself. God has to repeat Himself. And you know, it's just like humans to think that we can maneuver God from His will that makes us 
really uncomfortable to a modification of His will where we can feel pretty comfortable with that. I think that that's human nature. Have you ever gotten into a, somewhat an, an emotional argument with someone that you care for, that you care deeply about, but you really don't want to fight with? I mean, you're sitting on the couch watching a very important preseason football game between two teams you don't care for. When your wife asks you to take out the trash and you say something like, sure, I'll try to do it. I'll do it. And it's the beginning of the second quarter and halftime is, what, 10 minutes away? You'll do it then. You'll do it during halftime. And then 45 minutes rolls by and you sense the presence of an intensely frustrated female individual standing beside you. And you can tell that whatever answer you give is only going to make matters worse. And then it comes. Why didn't you take the trash out like I asked you to nearly an hour ago? And you say, I will take out the trash, but say, speaking of takeout, are you kind of hungry? Maybe we should get some takeout Chinese food or something. What do you say? And what you've done is deflected. And you say that in hope that the subject will be forgotten and that you can move on to something completely different. Well, in the case of Jonah, God does not move on. And God repeats Himself. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Now, on a more serious note, Jonah is lucky to be reprieved, is he not? There has been uh, this story back in 1 Kings chapter 13 of a disobedient prophet who came back and was mangled by a lion on his way home because he did not deal with God's Word rightly when it came to him and was obedient to the instructions of that Word. And here Jonah has been face to face with death and only by an exceptional grace had he been himself spared. And the point is that, that, that Jonah is, the book of Jonah is trying to get across is that the will of God is a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing. I mean, think about the, the, the fact that one of the most prevalent subjects that Jesus preaches about throughout the three years of His ministry as they're recorded for us in the Gospels is the subject of hell. Why talk about hell? Why speak about hell? Why even go to the trouble of describing hell if God's will, being obedient to it, is really not that big of a deal? But the fact that Jesus speaks very definitely as well as other writers in the New Testament of a place for the disobedient that is horrible and ugly. And the most horrible thing about it is it is a place where there is no hope of God ever coming for you. For those that are disobedient to God's will. The will of God is a very serious thing and God is not going to just forget it. And so God calls Jonah a second time and says, Jonah, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've noticed some language patterns in this text. The word great is associated with all of the things that God is doing. The word down is associated with Jonah and the ways that he is being disobedient and not being the, 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 the spiritual prophet of God. Now, this week we come to another word, and it's the word go. Now, unfortunately, all too often we, we solely focus on the opposite word, which is in our faith, uh, we focus on the word stop. I mean, there were years, a, a lot of years, in the early years of my faith, as I'm trying to, to figure out what it means to, to live the life of a disciple. 
to live the life of a Christian where I thought the basic call of God in my life was to stop doing things. And let me say very quickly that that's a very good thing. Part of your development as a disciple is to stop doing certain things in your life that are not just disobedient to God's will but are harmful to your life or puts God in a, in a terrible light in the community or, or says some very false things about the nature of God as they are revealed to us in Scripture. So part of that development is to stop doing things, but part of your development is to understand that at the heart of the Christian mission is not the word stop, but the word go. In, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, As you what? Go. Preach this message. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 12, what do you think, Jesus says, if a man owns a, owns a hundred sheep and one wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and what, church? Say it louder. Go to look for the one that wandered off. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Luke chapter 9 verse 60, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Same is true in the Old Testament. Same is true in the Old Testament. When God calls Abraham, He says, I want you to leave behind your city. And I want you to leave behind your family and all of your stuff. And all of the things that you're comfortable with. And I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And when God calls Moses, He says, I want you to stop being a shepherd in the desert of Midian. And I want you to go back to Egypt. At the heart of Christianity, there is a movement, a, a going that we can easily forget as we face the demands of our life. But God doesn't forget. And God doesn't forget why He has called and saved Jonah. And so where is Jonah called to go? Well, to Nineveh, which, as you know, is not a good place to go. It just simply looked too messed up. It simply looked too washed up for a good and holy God to have anything to do with it. You see, Nineveh is not merely the place you don't want to go to. It's also the place that appears to be simply out of God's reach, or so it seems. Today, it might be the friend or the family member that you've been praying about for a long time, but never seems to change, never seems to, to indicate that there's this movement in his heart that he might be open or she might be open to something spiritual happening in their life. It's that peer or the colleague who laughs at your faith or laughs at how you live or ridicules some of the decisions that you make because you're a person of spiritual integrity on the job site. Or it might be the person that you're trying to love but who responds like a twit most of the time. But God says... That's where we're going, and this is what we're doing. Now, Nineveh, indeed, is a horrible place. This is the empire that, whose armies ravaged the northern tribes of Israel in 721 B.C., and they would carry those ten tribes off into oblivion, never to be known or to hear, heard from again. And they would carry off these captives, I mean, just long lines of people in exile, and they had these gigantic hooks that they would put through their cheeks and tied to a rope, and that's how they would drag them along out into captivity. And if there was any city during this period of time that deserved a, let's, you know, let them have it all from a holy God, it would be Nineveh. And that is where God tells Jonah to go. Go to Nineveh. And this time, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. 
Now, I think we should give Jonah a little golf clap at this point, a little credit at this point, because he does that very thing, the very thing that he's called to do. Jonah finally obeys. Now, I want to, you know, again, let's pause here for a moment and reflect for a moment, because there are times, and let's just be honest, there are times when we, we, we get stuff wrong a lot of the time. And there are times when, when we're doing something and we know, you know what, this is probably not the right thing to be doing. This is not the thing that honors God. This is not the thing that makes me look like Jesus. This is not the thing that, that, that makes God look great and precious. And it doesn't make Christ look like my treasure. But amidst the constant struggles, there are those moments when you kind of get it right. When you do the right thing. Moments when you might gossip about a friend or a colleague and you don't. I mean, why do we gossip? It's because we like it. Why do we gossip? Because it feels good. Why do we talk down about somebody? Because it builds us up. And we know it's a sin to slander somebody, to gossip, and we're tempted, and we don't do it. Are there those moments when you act, you might act angrily to your spouse or to one of those little kiddos, and you hold back? Or a moment when you might act lustfully or you might act impulsively and you resist. And in those moments, when you obey, when I obey, when we obey, even if it seems small, even if it's just, you know, it seems like we're just getting one verse in the entire Bible right, you need to know that it pleases God. We need to know, and Jonah teaches us this over and over and over again, that we need to know that our obedience matters to God. What does John chapter 14 and verse 15 say? If you love me, you will obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Let's say that together as a church. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Let's say it again. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Circle John chapter 14 verse 15 on your outline. Obedience is one of the ways that you show love. If Jonah doesn't go, if Jonah is not obedient to God, we are not going to see what is about to happen in Nineveh. And so Jonah obeys God. He goes down to Nineveh. But just because we obey God doesn't mean the circumstances are going to be any less daunting. And so we pick up in verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. He went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh is a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh is going to be overturned. Now I imagine that Jonah gets pretty uh, frustrated. He's probably seen more paganism and he's probably seen more idolatry and more evil than he has ever seen in his life. And he stops and he gives what may be the shortest sermon in human history. He says, Od Arbim Yom Venenevo Nepaket. Five words in Hebrew. A sermon of five words. I mean, we should be so lucky to have such short sermons. But notice Jonah's message is also incredibly vague. It lacks all of the characteristic features of Old Testament prophecy. There's no word from the Lord. I mean, Amos, forever and ever and ever, saying, Ko Amar Adonai, thus saith the Lord. There's no, no word from God. 
that is mentioned the way that the other prophets do it. There's no naming of sins. There is no appeal for the victims of injustice. And more importantly, there is no mention of the name of Yahweh. What's going on here? Well, something that we begin to realize more and more and more is that God is up to something in every nation in the world. That God is working in every nation in the world because He created it. And He wants every nation to reflect His glory. And He wants that nation to be blessed by the knowledge that comes in the love of, 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 of Christ that is that gift of get, uh, grace that brings us into relationship with the God and every blessing that entails. God is up to something in every nation in the world. And verse 5, the Ninevites believe God. It's a huge surprise. The people that are probably farthest away from God, spiritually speaking, at least in terms of their, their humanity, the people farthest away from God, the people least likely to believe, come to believe in God, and they didn't just believe in God. The end of verse 5, they declare a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And the putting on the sackcloth was not just kind of a fashion statement. Sackcloth was this abrasive covering. It was as abrasive then as it is today, and it was worn in public as a sign of repentance. I mean, does that sound like something that the greatest in Nineveh and the most powerful, the respectable person in Nineveh would do? We talked a little bit about repentance in our young adult class this morning. Is that kind of repentance something that you would do? Well, here in Nineveh, even the people of privilege and the people of power are doing this. What would you think if Donald Trump appeared on television publicly fasting? Or Paris Hilton putting on sackcloth? These are public acts of conversion and repentance made by all the people of Nineveh. And God just didn't reach the greatest and the least. Look at verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. The, this, this king of Nineveh, this king of whom the prophet Nahum wrote, nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about this is going to clap his hands at your fall for who has not felt your endless cruelty. And here this brutal dictator gets off of his throne and he takes off his royal robes and he falls to his knees before the mercy of God. Now you might be thinking, okay, this is pretty amazing. And it is, truly. But God is just getting started. God didn't just reach the people and the nobles and the kings. God reached the very laws of the land. In verse 7, then he issued this king a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Have you ever heard of a law that ended with a question? The speed limit is 70 miles an hour? But in this day, in this day, Nineveh, a king's proclamation was like a word from deity. It was absolute. And even the beasts were covered with sackcloth, but 
But the people of Nineveh were so passionate about God, about turning their lives over to Him, that they even included their animals to show the completeness of it. And then verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. You know, every one of us in this room have what I consider to be a very dangerous list, what I call the dangerous list. All of us, even myself. All of us have a very dangerous list called the no-way list. The list is, you know, no way is that guy ever going to be converted. Or no way is that woman ever going to be changed. No way is that, is that family ever going to be changed. You know, we have to be very careful of the no-way list that each of us have. You know, I said last week that the book of Jonah is a book of comedy. The joke is, though, on us who believe that God cannot reach the unreachable. And the joke is on us, those of us, who trade in a God for whom all things are possible, for a God who is measurable and a God who is expected, a God of sensible outcomes, when our God is and always will be, a God of immeasurable grace, of unexpected mercy, and of impossible outcomes. And it's all because God doesn't look at Nineveh and say, no way, not possible. He says, I am the Lord who rescues people from their sins. And I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe it, even if you were told. I sometimes wonder how we in our church family look at just the city of San Antonio and the people that live in it. And sometimes wonder if our city, the north side, the south side, the east side, the west side, the downtown area, where the rich people live, where the poor people live, where the homeless people are. We look at this city and we go, no way. No way. No way. We look at our neighborhoods and we are more overwhelmed by the depth of things going wrong and the, the, the number of people that, 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 that whose lives are coming unhinged. We're more overwhelmed by that than we are, are just blasted by the greatness of the power of God in order to change people's lives, even like a, the people that lived in a city like Nineveh. The book of Jonah is a bit of foreshadowing. It's a, a, a bit of foreshadowing of what Jesus would be about centuries down the road. When we read these Gospels, Jesus would reach the unreachable. And Jesus would touch the untouchable. And Jesus would love the unlovable. And He would do it in such magnificent ways that it, it changed people's lives. And you know what? He's still doing that today. And maybe there are people in your neighborhood, or maybe it's you yourself. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what, I feel like I'm more like a Ninevite than anything else in the world today. And I feel that my life is so unreachable that God would never want anybody like me in His family. Or that my life is so rotten that God is so untouchable that God wouldn't even touch my life if He had a ten-foot pole. Or that I'm so unlovely that God would never love somebody like me. I'm damaged goods. I'm ugly, 
And God would never love somebody as ugly as me. One of the great things that Jonah reminds us of is that God's heart is for all His creation and for all of His creatures. And that He showed us in the most tangible, visible, physical way possible by He Himself coming in the flesh in Jesus and sat down with the Gentiles and sat down with the tax collectors and sat down with those that were known sinners in the community in order to eat with them. There is no one that is outside the possibility of God's grace coming to them, even if you live like a Ninevite. Even if you live like a Ninevite. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And maybe you're ready to leave that, that, that Ninevite life and to come into God's family and to experience His grace. Our shepherds would love to talk to you about how that can happen even today and find that God with that kind of a great heart and that kind of great mercy, that kind of great grace touching your life and loving you and reaching out to you and bringing you in close to His heart. And if that describes you this morning, then come down to the front and talk to these shepherds as we stand and sing together. Tell me the story of Jesus right